Well, this morning I'm excited to get to share with you all. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege every time that I get to, to come up here and, and share, and so I'm thankful for that. Typically, um, as I dive in, I say a prayer that, um, that I would be able to communicate well everything that the Lord's put in my heart, and, and I want to do that, but I was also um, encouraged this morning to invite you all to pray. Um, I had heard a, a speaker one time um, ask, ask the people he was, he was speaking to, his audience, he was asking them, how many of you would like to be changed this morning? And he was, what he was getting at was there's an opportunity to hear the word and to smile and nod and walk out the doors completely unchanged, and there's an opportunity to hear the word of God, apply it in your heart, put it into practice, and be completely changed by it. And the difference is not dependent on how well I communicate, but the difference is dependent on, on what your hunger is and what your expectation is and what your willingness is. And so I was encouraged this morning to invite you to pray along with me. Um, I'm going to be praying that I communicate well, but instead of you praying for me, I want you to pray for you this morning. I want you to pray that your hearts and your minds would be open, uh, that the seed of the Word of God would fall on good soil, and that it would produce a, a crop of 50 and 100 times as much fruit. Amen? Excellent. So would you do me the honor of praying for yourself this morning? All right, I'll take that as a yes. Uh, Father God, we thank you for what you're doing. We're excited to be a part of it. Thank you for choosing us to be a part of your kingdom, to be a part of your people. Lord, we pray that we would not take this responsibility lightly, but this morning uh, that we would study and show ourselves worthy and approved. Lord, we pray that your word wouldn't fall on hard hearts or deaf ears, but instead, Lord, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our ears. And this morning, that we would be expectant. Lord, this morning, that we would be hungry. This morning, that as we, we come with an eagerness, Lord, we pray that we would be filled. We pray that we would be filled with your spirit and with your wisdom and with your understanding, with your knowledge and with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Excellent. Um, I'm, I'm not a history buff by any means. Um, history wasn't my, my favorite subject in school, but I learned enough about history to understand that it's important. And although uh, history oftentimes repeats, even, even more often, it'll, it'll rhyme. And so you'll see that through the ages, there's these reoccurring themes and these things that happen again. And what I've noticed in my limited study is that there seems to be this big pendulum that swings from one extreme back to the other. And one generation will, uh, will embrace one thing, and they may take it a little bit too much to an extreme, and the next generation will, will kind of move to the, to the opposite of that. Um, we see it in, in different things, and, and because uh, I, I kind of live and work in a church bubble, I see it a lot inside of, like, church and church history. And so there are times where um, one generation will, will embrace, you know, extreme, extreme giving to where, like, they're, they're living in poverty. And they sort of denounce riches, and they say, we don't need that, and they find a sort of piousness in their poverty. They think that there is, there is a, a holy brokenness. And so they, they swing to that side, and then it seems that the pendulum in the course of a generation or two will swing the other way. And then you get sort of this prosperity gospel where people are like, no, like, you, are, you can tell how close you are to God with how many blessings you have. And, and both of those are extremes, and I think God calls us not to just one verse of the Bible, but to the scriptures as a whole, to understand our theology and our doctrine, not just to take one, one scripture, especially out of context, and to run with it and throw everything else out and say, oh, well, well, I'm only holy if I'm blessed, or I'm only holy if I denounce every, every blessing and everything. Or you see it uh, in other, other seasons and other 
you know, ages of history, you see this embrace of uh, demons and the spiritual and the supernatural, where people will think there's a demon behind every bush. And if you sneeze, it's because of a demon. And, and then, you know, a generation or two will take it and they'll extreme to the other extreme of the pendulum. And they'll say, well, talking about demons is weird and it's kind of scary and exorcisms are only for horror movies. And so we won't talk about it at all. And we will just ignore that there is a spiritual and a supernatural and we'll just live our lives in the natural. And that's, that's also not a correct. So, so both ends of these swings, you have these kind of extreme fringes of things. And it happens again and again with all sorts of different things. Uh, reaching back into history, the Crusades said, we're going to kill anyone who doesn't believe like us. And then there was a, a move of, uh, of people where they embraced a thinking that said, well, it's okay if you don't believe like us. You know, there's several ways to paradise and to heaven. And, and that's, that's wrong too. So we're, when we kill people who don't believe with us, we're not loving our enemies very well. And when we, when we water down the gospel, we also aren't loving people well because we're not being honest and truthful about like, what the word of God says. So, so both of these extremes get people in, into trouble. And, and I believe that in this season, God is correcting a lot of these different things and bringing us back into alignment so that we can really move in step with him. When we, when we chase these extremes, uh, it causes a lot of problems, either in our own life or in others. Some of the others is um, uh, preaching fire and brimstone. Like, okay, hell is a real place. We need to acknowledge that. But when that's your whole gospel message, when every sermon is just how terrible hell is and everyone is going to burn and die, that's, uh, you know, we miss sight of, like, some of the grace. But some people wanting to embrace grace in these big swings of the pendulum, and I'm painting with broad brushstrokes, and I'm not trying to target any one individual or people, but uh, some people will swing so far to grace that everything is fine. And there is no problem with sin. And we'll never preach on sin because there's enough grace to cover all of it. And although grace does cover every sin and all of it, we're still called to live right. We're not called to just like, oh, well, whatever you do, it's fine because you've got this get out of jail free card or get out of hell free card. It's, it's different than that. So both extreme is, is wrong and God is calling us to the whole of scripture, not just like one passage. But he's calling us to really study and to really understand and really to live from everything. One of the ones I've seen... Uh, a lot is um, the swing from uh, demonizing feelings, you know, so if you had feelings, it was wrong, and you got to just live by the word, and you got to live by the spirit, and your feelings have no place, and then a, a generation took it and swung it to the opposite of like, well, I feel this way, so that must be God, and it's like, okay, well, we have feelings, and feelings are good, but just because you're feeling something doesn't mean it's God. And just because you have feelings doesn't mean that you need to repent from it. You know? so, so God created us to love and to feel and to have these things. But those things shouldn't, shouldn't rule us. So that's, that's a big pendulum swing where I believe God in this season is saying, okay, let's, let's try and bring it in to the whole of Scripture, not just like one thing or another. Um, another one it has to do with, uh, with um, self-harm and self-comfort. So self-harm in some seasons, uh, people or especially like kind of groups of, of people, different kind of, you call them more, more kind of out there fringes, have embraced this like self-denial. They found scriptural, which is right, that we're supposed to deny ourselves and carry our cross and do that. And they sort of take it to an extreme where it's like, okay, like this is a little much. Like we don't need to cut ourselves. We don't need to harm ourselves to prove how much we love God. 
And then on the other extreme, you have a generation that, that rebels against that and says, okay, well, I don't, want to be, I don't want to be that. That doesn't seem right. And so they run too far to the other side, and they say, okay, well, well self-comfort. So instead of like extreme self-denial, I'll do extreme self-comfort. And the whole gospel is so that I can live life and life abundantly. It's like, okay, well, yeah, that is a scripture, and that's true. Jesus came that they may have life and life abundantly. But we want to take the whole of scripture. And so instead of swinging into this, the gospel is just so that I can be prosperous and, and comfortable and convenient and so that Jesus can help my life, there is this sort of middle section where, where it's a, a both and, where when we take the whole of scripture, we see that God is blessing our life that there is a richness in the life of Christ, that we have a peace that this world doesn't understand, that there is provision, that there is comfort. There is all of those things. But there's also a lot of times where God asks us to do some really strange, uncomfortable, and difficult things. And we have to be okay with the, the plurality or the both of those things. And that we have to be um, aware that we don't get caught up in a, in a swinging culture that will move from one extreme to another over time. So this morning, this is how I want to stir our hearts. It's that we wouldn't swing to one extreme or another, that we wouldn't grab on to extreme fringes because we, we saw one verse or one thing or, uh, or, or one passage out of context or one, one message, and we would run with that. Because as we read the whole Bible, and I encourage you to read all of it, not just the New Testament, not just the Gospels, but, but all of it is really rich and really useful, as we read through it, we, we get the balance. We get the whole of it. We get a pendulum that's, that's in the middle. And when we're in the middle, we're, I believe we're really in line with what God is doing. We're really in line with how he's moving and the steps that he's taking. And then that allows us to, to really run into building his kingdom. But when we get off on these extremes, um, I would be so bold as to say that sometimes we aren't building his kingdom, but we're, we're um, deconstructing it, that we're breaking it, that we're kind of... Uh, causing it to crumble when we get way out on these extremes because then it's like, well, that's not a right representation of Jesus. And, and that's not actually who God the Father is. And so, so it's important to understand both how culture will try to swing those things and what the scripture says about those things. With that as the groundwork for this, I want to I share with you a word that the Lord placed in my heart last week. It was radicalize. Now, I know I just said like, okay, these are extremes and these are extremes and we're going to be balanced in the center. So, so go with me on this. But the word was radicalize. And it had been in my spirit in, in a few different ways. Sometimes the way Holy Spirit speaks to me is kind of through themes or through thoughts. So I was reading different scriptures and, and different aspects of it was just sort of popping out to me. I was taking notice of it. You know, you can read a whole passage and, and each time you read it, something different will pop out. And so different things were popping out to me in, in my own personal time with the Lord. And then last Sunday, Pastor Mike led this ministry moment where he talked about being knighted. Uh, and putting on the armor, and stepping into the fight, and the battle, and, and being knights. And when he talked about that, and about sort of the extreme nature of knights, that they don't often take off their armor because they're always ready, and um, they're, they're always um, ready to lay down their life, and, and to make these kind of big, big acts of service. I don't, I don't know how to, I'm at a loss for words, but it just to be a knight is like a big thing. At least, you know, back then in that context. Nowadays, we, we don't really have that, and so much of the world has changed. I was just, and this is kind of a funny thought, but I was thinking about knights and about how they're always in their armor, and, it, and part of it, I was thinking, well, they don't have radar, 
They don't have advanced warning systems. Like, they don't have missile defense systems. And so their idea of, like, security, like, we've got cameras or we've got, you know, proximity sensors or motion detectors. We have all these things. Or, like, you know, mass text messaging or, like, cell phones where it can, like, reverse dial and, like, everyone gets a call, robo-dialers. Like, we've got these, like, sort of instant ways to communicate. Back then, if you were a knight and you were, like, in a castle and you had someone that was out patrolling... They, their only warning was just like what they could see on the next hill. So if they see an army coming over the next hill, you just have to hope that that guy runs really fast, and then that's your warning time. Is he gets there breathless, doesn't know where you are because he doesn't have Find My Friends, and, and can't call you because he doesn't have a phone. So he's just literally running around the castle like shouting like for the guy in charge, hoping to find him. And by the time he does find him, he says, hey, a few minutes ago, I saw someone on the hill just outside. And so now all of a sudden, like, they're at your front gate and you have to be ready. And I thought, wow, our life is so different from that because we don't constantly live under the fear of invasion, for one. But then, two, when we do, we have these sort of advanced, like, systems. And so I was just thinking about this, this to live constantly ready. And I believe in the supernatural. As much as our natural world has changed, as much as society and culture has shifted to where it's like we can live in peace and people aren't constantly invading us and we're not under constant threat of danger, when we can live in that way, it's easy to lose sight that in the, in the spiritual realm, there is this constant battle. And it's easy to, to lose sight that, that we should always be in armor and that you're, there's not a huge like advanced warning system. You know, it's not it's not always the case that the Holy Spirit will come to you and nudge you and be like, hey, in two weeks, you're going to really be under attack. So you gotta, you got to start working on it today. you know, you got to build up your defenses, really be in your word this week because next week's going to be tough. That doesn't always happen. Sometimes the storms of life, they hit without warning. In the natural, it's beautiful. We've got radars and weathers and Doppler and all those funny things. And, and weathermen, for better or for worse, they'll do their best to tell us like how the weather's going to come and when the storms will be here. And, and you know that people are aware of it because you go to King Supers and like everything's sold out. And it's like, oh, they know there's a storm coming and everyone went and bought stuff for chili. That, that happens. In our lives, though, when the storms of life hit, we don't always have this heads up that like, hey, there's going to be a death in the family. Or, hey, you're going to get really sick. Or, or, hey, your, your job's going to have to let you go unexpectedly. Like, those things, we don't, we don't get those. And so we have to always be ready. And, and we get ready by really building our lives on the, on the foundation of Jesus. We build our lives on the rock. And, and Jesus teaches that when the storms of life comes, and, and they will come, and they will rage, and they will pound, and the waves will be big, and the winds will be strong, but you'll be built on a bedrock of foundation, and it will not shake you. You will survive. And that's his encouragement. He says, don't, don't lose heart. You, you will make it. So even when it's difficult, we can, we can still make it. Okay, so I'm thinking about all this, and I'm thinking about the, um, the, the knights, and they've always got to be in their armor because they always have to be ready, and how we're supposed to be like that now because we've been knighted, and, and we are, we're fighting for the kingdom of God, and all of that is good. And so that was confirming this word and this thing that I had been hearing, this word of radicalize. And, uh, and so as I was thinking about it more, the, the times that I had heard radicalize used, because it's not a common word. Radical was kind of common in the 90s. You know, you'd do something, people would be like, oh, it's radical. Radicalize is, is a very different, um, that, the connotation for that, it really typically only gets used when people are talking about, like, terrorist activity. 
Um, and so, and so I'm, I'm a little ginger in using that word this morning because the times I used it so much was like, or heard it so much was several years ago when ISIS was like all on the news. And there was a lot of stories about how they were trying to reach sympathetic Westerners and radicalize them to come and like fight for them. And so that term of radicalize was really interesting because that's what the Lord was speaking to me. And so as, as Pastor Mike was leading us in this moment of being knighted, I was hearing the Lord say that, like, it's time for the church to get radicalized. Radicalized in the sense of, like, we are willing to lay down our, our comforts and our conveniences. Radicalized, not that we would run to an extreme of a doctrine or, or be extremist about one particular thing, but that we'd be extreme about God that we would be extreme about the kingdom of God. Not getting, like, spun off on weird theologies or strange, like, fringe things, but, but that we would, we would be really radical in the way that we love, that we would be radical in our faith, that we would be radical in our obedience. Not radical like we got to go and, like, kill people. That's not what I'm saying this morning. Radical in how we love people. So the opposite. Radical, not in that we constantly think the sky is falling or the world is ending or Jesus is going to come back this afternoon. Radical in the way that we're obedient to his words. Radical in the way that we have faith and we believe that what he says will come true. So that's what I want to, that's what I want to talk about this morning is we're radicalizing. That's, that's it. So, so I talked about this big pendulum swinging towards self-comfort. And, and that's one of the things I want to just tackle first is like as we, as we think about radicalizing and having radical love and radical obedience and radical faith, I want us to understand that, that we have to come to terms that this pendulum has swung a little bit too far to self-comfort and that as we take the whole of Scripture, Jesus didn't come so that we could be comfortable. The gospel is not one of, if you give me your life, it won't cost you anything and I'll give you everything in return. The gospel is actually, if you give me your life, and that means we have to give everything um, and when we, but as we give it, he gives us a much better life, but better not in terms of easier or more comfortable, better in that it's more fulfilling, better in that it's with him and it's never apart from him, um, better in that we'll never be uh, alone or abandoned, but we'll always be loved and cared for. So it's better in the way that like broccoli is better than donuts. Donuts, <laughs> donuts taste really good. But, but broccoli is good for us, okay? And so, um, so I'm praying this morning that we would embrace our vegetables. Healthy New Year. Okay, so, so here's some passages that I, I just want to, us to think about. I want to use these to kind of prime us for a conversation that we're about to have. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 3. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is a prophet. And um, he's living in a time when the people of God are not living correctly. Uh, they have a list of, of rules and a covenant with the Lord all the way back from Moses. He gives that to them, and they have all rejected that, and, and the culture has swung, just as we were talking about pendulums this morning, the culture has really swung to an extreme that says, we don't need God, we'll live life on our own, we'll live life our way, we'll do things the way we want, which um, may have a, like a, a sound of familiarity. So Ezekiel is not living that way. Instead, he's living godly. He's one of the few people who are still um, honoring God and living correctly and doing all the things that, that he's supposed to. So the Lord comes to Ezekiel, and the word of the Lord says, hey, here's what's going to happen. I want you to go into your house, and I want you to not leave for an extended period of time, and I'm going to take your tongue, and I'm going to stick it to the roof of your mouth so that you can't talk. 
And it's like, okay, here you've got Ezekiel, and he's like thinking, I'm doing really well. Everyone else has, you know, kind of abandoned God, but I'm still worshiping him, and I'm still serving him. And God comes in, hey, I want to do an unpleasant thing. So you think, well, that's strange. Hopefully the next chapter gets better. It doesn't. In chapter 4, it gets really weird because um, the Lord wants Ezekiel to perform this sort of prophetic act in front of people. He wants Ezekiel to take his life and it to be a representation of what's happening in the culture and how God is going to move. So that's why God asks him to do it. But what he asks him to do is weird. He asks him to lay on his side for 390 days. And he doesn't want him to get up and go about his life. This isn't just like, hey, 15 minutes a day, like lay down, take a power nap. This is going to be great. It's going to represent something. It's, I want you to prepare, you know, over a year's worth of food, ration it out so you just get a little bit each day. And then I want you to lay on your side and you won't be able to turn over. You're just going to lay on the side for over a year. And that's it. And that's what God calls him to do. This man of God who's like, I'm following God. Everyone else is rebellious and wicked and I'm honoring God. And God's like, great, I'm going to use you and it's going to be very uncomfortable. In Hosea chapter 1, Hosea, kind of a similar situation. The, the people of God have abandoned God and, and Hosea is one of the kind of the, the remnant or the few that are still honoring God. He's, he's a prophet and he's hearing the word of the Lord and he's trying to tell people. And he's telling them, hey, you're living your life wrong. God doesn't like it. We've got to turn back and we've got to honor him. And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. We don't want to hear this. So the Lord comes to Hosea and says, hey, I want you to live your life as a prophetic act. I want the thing that you do in the natural to represent what is happening in the culture and what I'm going to do and how I'm going to respond. Hosea says, great, you know, establish me as king and, and it's going to represent how, how God is reigning. And the Lord's like, no, 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 here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have you marry a, a promiscuous woman, a woman of the night, you know, like a, 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 someone who works the streets. I'm trying to use some delicate language for our kids. Um, I want you to marry this woman, and, and she's going to continue to work uh, even after you marry her. And some of your children are going to be born uh, as part of her employment. And Hosea, the man of the Lord, is like, are you sure, God? Like, how many of you would think, like, I must not be hearing the Lord. Like, this is clearly not of God. And, and, it, and it's not, but God is asking him to do something incredibly uncomfortable, something that's not convenient. So now he gives himself, he actually begins to like love her, but she keeps running away. And, and the Lord uses it as this beautiful picture of how he loves his people, but they are constantly turning away and giving their love to someone else. And so God has established this marriage covenant with his people saying, I will love you forever, love me forever. And the people have said, nah, I'm going to go sleep around with these other people. And, and so he lives his life as his prophetic, prophetic act. Now, I'm not saying all of us are called to live our lives in these dramatic prophetic acts. But I want to begin to illustrate that throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, gospel and early church, we see that God calls people to some weird and uncomfortable and challenging things. His, our, sorry, our comfort is not his first priority. And so I just want to kind of establish this as a baseline. In Luke chapter 9, verse 57, um, Jesus is talking to some people. He's like, hey, come and follow me. And they're like, okay, but first let me do this and this. And Jesus tells them, he says, okay, well, well foxes have dens and, you know, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's saying, I'm, I'm homeless traveling right now. Like, we are, we are on the road constantly. We don't have this, like, comfortable place. Some of us are sleeping on floors. Some of us are sleeping in barns. Like, there's not going to be a great, it's not going to be super comfortable to come and follow me. 
that's what he's, he's inviting us to. He's not inviting us to like, oh, it's going to be great. We'll take a private jet from city to city. We'll get put up in the Ritz and the Carlton and the JW Marriott. Like, it'll be nice. Instead, he's like, we're going to couch surf. And, um, and some of you, you know, there's 12 of us. Not every house is going to have 12 couches. So some of you are going to get on the floor. And that's what he's calling these people to. He continues on, and someone's like, I don't want to come and follow you, but I got some things I got to take care of. And he's like, no, no, no. And he says in sort of some harsh terms, and there's some explanations that culturally it wasn't as harsh, but it was still kind of harsh. But he tells them, no, you're either in or you're out. And then he tells, he tells a group, he says, and if you're not, uh, if, you, if you put your hand to work, and then you look back, he says, you're not, you're not fit for it. So if you're coming, you got to be all in. You can't be like, oh, I want to do this, but I really wish, I really miss my old life, or I want Jesus, but I also want to still be able to do these things. He says, no, 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 you're not fit for following me if that's going to be the case. So Jesus puts some hard demands, and they're not like fun, like, that's not typically like our Christmas Eve service where it's like, come follow Jesus, it's not easy. Like, we usually do something different. But maybe in the future we'll, we'll consider it. Matthew chapter 19 uh, Jesus tells one guy, sell everything and follow me. And Peter, one of the disciples, hears this and he goes, well, what about us, Jesus? Like, we've given up everything. And he says, yes, that's true. And just, I was, I was caught by that phrase of we've given up everything. And I know in my life, I haven't, and I'm very thankful, I haven't been at a place yet where God has asked me to sell everything and follow him. Um, but I was just reflecting on, on Peter's words where it's, we've given everything to follow you. And I was thinking, man, like, have I given everything? You know, maybe, and, and again, this is, these are, um, this pendulum's going to swing, so bear with me. There are moments where Jesus says, sell everything and follow me. And for some people, that's the requirement. And there's also, when we take the whole of Scripture, there's times where it says, um, take care of the poor and needy among you, uh, care for the widows and orphans. W- when you sell everything, you can give to the widows and orphans. But after you sell everything, you also need someone to give to you. And so you can't continue to support the widows and orphans unless you have a job and an income and then you can give. So there's like this, for most of us, we're called to this balance of uh, we work hard, we give generously, and then we continue to work hard and we continue to give generously. And it's not just working hard to build our kingdom and working hard so that we're more comfortable. It's, it's sort of a both and. And then there are extremes where uh, we're called to to kind of step out in faith and give more than it makes sense to give. And then there are times where where we're supposed to store up, like Joseph stored up um, for the the seven years of plenty. He had a lot, and a lot of people have been like, what's this guy doing with so much? That's not right. That's not righteous. But God had a plan in in the storing up. And so, so in everything, you're supposed to listen to the Holy Spirit and listen to the Lord, and he'll direct you. But I want you to understand that there's like, there are moments in Scripture where God asked God, Jesus, the Lord, Holy Spirit, depending on which book of the Bible you're reading, he, they ask something very specific and kind of very extreme uh, on both ends of these spectrums. And we're not just supposed to take that and run with it. We're supposed to take the whole of Scripture and then listen to God constantly for how we're doing this. Okay, so comfort. Talking about comfort. Acts chapter 20. Um, I think it's Paul in chapter 20. He's writing. He says, I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. And so... And so when we think about following, following the Holy Spirit, like we don't always think about jail and suffering and chains lying ahead of us. Normally we think like, oh, he's, you know, he's calling me to a better tomorrow and like this is going to be great and there's going to be glory in my story and like all those fun things that preach well. But sometimes it's like, no, the very will of God is that I would, 
I would run towards the thing that scares me or I would run towards the uncomfortable thing because if that's what he's calling us to, he'll give us a grace for it. So, so sometimes there's that. Um, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul lists a whole, whole list of awful things that have happened to him. And so here's a guy who, who writes like a third of the New Testament. He writes a ton of, of what we call scripture. And yet his life was not easy or convenient or comfortable. So, so as we think about radicalizing, uh, we have to be okay with, with swinging this pendulum back away from comfort. That God's first priority is not our comfort, um, but instead it's his kingdom. And so when we say, okay, I'm going to live radically, I'm going to live like that night, and I'm going to have radical love and radical obedience and radical faith, as we do that, we have to be okay with understanding that this is going to cost us our comfort and our convenience. Now, praise God, living in America, like there's not a lot of chains and, and prison and whips waiting for us as believers. Um, but it's funny that some of us will, will jump to, you know, I'll die for, for God. You know, I'll, I'll go to prison for God. But, we, but it's so hard to just like witness to our neighbors or like to be vocal about Christ in the workplace. Like that feels difficult. But we're, we're like, oh, I'm radical. Like I'll, I'll die for him. And I'm right there in that boat. I'm not criticizing anyone. I'm just saying, like, sometimes being radical aren't these outrageous gestures. They're just the everyday of, like, I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to read my Bible every day. Like, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to give him the first moments of my time. Before I check my phone, before I get on my email, before I make my coffee, I'm going to give God these first moments. Sometimes that's what radical looks like. And it's not these, like, dramatic, big grandiose things of like, well, I died for him. It's like, it's just living for him sometimes. And so when we're thinking about being radicalized, think about that as well. Okay. When we are living radically for Jesus, when we're living sold out, radical love, radical faith, radical obedience, um, it, takes, uh, it takes discipleship to get there. So you don't just in a moment, in a Sunday morning like this, decide, I'm going to be radical. I'll do that. And then go about like your normal life because then nothing changes. So in order for something to change, we have to change something. And so that means like we have to be, we have to be in a place where we're allowing others to speak into us and where we are also in this discipleship process speaking into others. And so that is how things change. But I want to clarify, discipleship is not just a Bible study. Even though studying the Bible is beautiful, and I was just talking about how we've got to be in it so that we know when we're experiencing a, a pendulum swing, but discipleship does not start and end with a Bible study. And so just because like, oh, well, I, I listened to a podcast, or oh, like I went to this Bible study, like that's not the end of discipleship. Discipleship involves us submitting our whole life to Jesus. Here are Paul's words to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says this, it says, this is why we work hard and continue to struggle, not live comfortably, but continue to struggle for our hope is in the living God, who is the Savior of all people and particularly of all believers. Teach these things and insist that everyone learn them. Don't let anyone think less of you because you are young, but be example to all believers in what you say. So our speech matters to God in the way you live, the choices we make, what we do day to day, in your love. So that's our relationships and how we, um, how we care for people and how we, how we love them. In your faith, how we believe, what we believe, where, our, where we put our faith, and in our purity, in the things that we say and the thoughts that we think and what we do with our body. Like those things all matter to God. And so when we think about being discipled, it's not just a Bible study. It's all of this. 
It's being submitted to God in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions, in our choices, in every area of our life. God is interested in all of it. He bought all of it. He didn't just buy like your Sunday mornings. He bought the whole thing. And so when, when that happens, we have to give all of that to him. Now, if I just listen to a podcast or I just attend a Bible study, um, there's, there's a lot that I'm learning, and that's good. But I need those people in my life, those mothers and those fathers, that will call me out when my, when my speech doesn't line up with it. And I need to have those brothers in the faith that I can go to when, when my thoughts aren't in line with the Word of God. Um, or I need to have those people that'll, that'll see things in my life and they'll say, hey, that's not, that's not in the Word. Like, that's not how God calls you to live. And so you need those people that'll call you out. And that only happens in, in family. That only happens in community. And so when we talk about being discipleship, we're not just saying, like, you need to watch more YouTube videos, even though, like, those are good. You need to read more scripture, even though that's incredible. You also need the people of God, the mothers and fathers that will, that will, that will help you, that will train you, that will call those things out, and that will call you higher. So if you're thinking, okay, I want to live radically for God. I want to have radical faith. I want to be that knight that, that never takes off the armor, that's always in the battle, that's ready to go no matter what because, you know, the early warning system is just a guy running fast. When that is your choice, when that is your decision, when, when you say, yes, I want to do that, the practical steps of that is finding a community of believers that will help do that same thing. It's finding that group of people that will say, yes, I want to do that too. And yes, I will call you out to that. And yes, I will do that. And so as you look around and you're like, oh, where do I find those people? Look up and down your row because they're sitting near you. So that's like, this is who I'm encouraging you to connect with. So after today, you know, when we dismiss later, like exchange some phone numbers, put something in your calendar because that needs to change. And then personally, like it's not enough. You can't just put it on someone else. You can't say, okay, well, I've got someone else. So now I'm, I'm radical or now I'm discipled. What you also have to do is you have to put it in, in your calendar and you have to put it in your life and you have to put it in your plan. So, so without making any changes, tomorrow morning you wake up and you fall back into last week's routine. You do the same thing. But if you want to live radically, you have to make these changes and you have to say, okay, well, I'm going to set my alarm a little earlier so I wake up or I'm going to download version and, and get a Bible reading plan or I'm going to set my alarm so I join the 6 a.m. prayer call or whatever it is, but you got to start taking next steps to make this stuff last into tomorrow. It's not just going to be a, a fun prayer that we pray this morning and then what we call in our house like the Disney swirl when you watch a Disney movie and like, you know, Cinderella's dressed in rags and then the fairy godmother does the swirl and all of a sudden, ah, like, you know, the mouse are horses and the pumpkin's a carriage and like everything's nice. Unfortunately, Holy Spirit doesn't always work that way. There are rare occasions where he does, and it's beautiful. For the most part, we're called to the hard work of like choosing this stuff day in and day out. And so when I talk about being radicalized, it's not just that we would die for Christ, but it's also that we would live every day for him. And so that it's every morning we wake up and it's, he's a part of our life. At our workplace, he's a part of our life. As we're in the drop-off line for, for our kids at school, like he's a part of that, that we're inviting him into to everything. Okay, so he's got every part of our life. I've mentioned radical love, radical faith, radical obedience. I, I want to take just a moment and kind of unpack those ideas. So in John 13, 34, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And I, I love this verse so much because... For the longest time, I thought that our, our stances on political issues or our, um, 
boycotting of certain business practices. I thought that would really let people know that we were his disciples. Uh, and I don't think it does a great job of it. I think instead, uh, Jesus hits the nail on the head much better, and it's, it's our love. And so when we think of radical love, it's the type of love that loves the people that don't like you. It's not enough to just love your friends or to love the family that loves you, but you have to even love the family that maybe you saw over Christmas that you were ready to get back home from, or maybe, maybe the, love the, the people in your life that um, I've heard different people call them uh, grace growers. You know, so the people that really help you grow in grace because you got to have extra grace and extra patience for that person. So it's, it's this love even for our enemies, for the people you disagree with, the people that you think are on the different aisle, across the aisle from you, or that are, you know, have a different view on the world, or the people that just don't like you. And you're like, I don't know what's wrong with that person. Like, I'm really nice. Like, if they got to know me, I'd, they'd like me. you got to love even those people. And it's in, that, it's in those expressions of love that we really, we really represent Jesus well. It's not in our demonstrating or our protesting or in those other things. There's probably a time and place for those, but our, they will know us as disciples because of our love. And so we need to focus on unloving well. So if we're going to be radicalized, if we're going to live as knights, if we're going to be in the battle, if we're going to really push the kingdom of God forward, it's going to take radical love. When people get married, a lot of times the preachers will read from 1 Corinthians 13. It's sort of a beautiful passage about love. And we see it a lot of times in the context of marriage that like, oh, like, you know, and you'll always be like this for your spouse. Uh, and that's good. I'd encourage you to do that because radical love also starts like in your home and with your family. And that's great. Um, but I, I was sort of laughing earlier this week as I was putting some of these notes together that that 1 Corinthians 13, we don't teach that very often for like, here's what you need to do with the people you dislike, you know, and read through that. Like, you need to be patient, you need to be long-suffering, keep no record of wrongs. You know, when you're driving in traffic and you're irritated and someone cuts you off, it's like, okay, well, well, don't keep a record of that wrong. And, you know, and you go back to 1 Corinthians 13 and it feels so out of context to not use it in the terms of marriage. But that's really how it was applied. It wasn't just for the wedding ceremonies. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, is how we're supposed to live our lives constantly. And so, um, and so when we choose radical love, like that's a big piece of it. Okay, radical faith. Radical faith. Um, there's, some, there's some big ones like uh, Daniel in the, in the um, yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel chapter 3. There's this blazing furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he's the king, and he says, okay, if you uh, don't worship my statue and my idol, then I'm going to throw you into a, a furnace, which is just kind of like a weird, weird thing. I don't know why that was like the easiest way to get rid of people, but it sounded really scary and intimidating, and so that's what he went with. Um, and, and so these three godly men stand up and say, no, we're not going to do it. And, and let me read from it. It says, this is Daniel 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save. He will rescue us from your power. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you've set up. So their faith wasn't just in what God could do. It was in who he was. Because they say he is able to save. That's faith in what God can do. He will rescue us. That's what he's going to do. And then, but even if he doesn't, we still won't worship you. That's who he is. 
We will always worship God before that. Now, that's radical faith because then they get thrown into the fire. Thankfully, the story ends really well. They don't get burned up. They come out. The whole nation, uh, like the rules and the legislation gets saved and there's a big move of God. It's beautiful how God uses that. It's radical faith. For the most part, very few of us are going to be in this position. Now, it's good to know because in case you are, in case you're the one out of like a thousand that does, like you need to know that scripture. Like you, you will, you know, God can save you. But there are much smaller things in our life that we need to be positioned with this same mentality of God is able to do it, God will do it, and even if he doesn't, he's still worthy of praise. You know, so God can save my ailing person, you know, family member. He will save and heal my ailing family member, and even if he doesn't, he's still worthy of praise. God can provide for me, he will provide for me, and even if I miss a meal or I miss a payment or I get behind, he's still worthy of praise. But so many of us build our, our faith on just what he will do. He will provide for me. He will save me. He will heal this person. And when it doesn't happen, we stop having faith in who he is. And we just say, oh, this must be wrong. This must not work. So our faith has to be on the both end. God can do it. He will do it. And even if he doesn't, he's still worthy of praise. That is what radical faith is. It's not that we would be willing to go into the fire, although like good on you if you can, the radical faith is that, like, even if he doesn't, we still, we still praise him. We still worship him. We still love him. We still serve him. We still give him our everything. One of the more, so I said the furnace is kind of like, you know, it's rare that you're going to get thrown in a furnace. One of the more common ones is a story I love in Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus and the disciples, they just finished up a ministry in one city, and they're headed to another, another city across a, a big lake. And um, while they're riding in the boat, a big storm comes in. So here's, here's where we pick it up. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and they started out. As they sailed across, Jesus settled down for a nap. So naps are scriptural. But soon a fierce storm came down on the lake. The boat was filling with water and they were in real danger. Anyone been in real danger before? Maybe your car starts to skid on the ice or, I don't know, danger. You just, you've been there. So they were in real danger. The disciples went and woke Jesus up shouting, Master, Master, we are going to drown. They're in real danger and their response is that we are going to drown. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and suddenly the storm stopped and all was calm. Then he asked them, where is your faith? The disciples were terrified and amazed. They said, who is this man? They asked each other. When he gives a command, even the wind and the waves obey him. So for years as I've read this, the part that caught me was like what jumps out to most people is the wind and the waves obey Jesus. Like how much more do I need to obey Jesus if all of nature will in an instant respond to his commands? That's amazing and powerful and it's beautiful and it's awesome. But what really caught me this week under the context of living radically and having radical faith was, was the way Jesus says, where is your faith? Because so many times he criticizes the disciples. He loves them, but he, you know, he kind of kicks them in the behind a few times. And he says, you have such little faith, or why do you have so little faith? And so many times he questions the quantity of faith, or when they do something great, he says, wow, I've never seen this much faith. Uh, so normally he's commenting on the quantity of faith, but in this passage specifically, he questions the location of their faith. He says, where is your faith? 
And what I was beginning to understand is if you go back up a little bit further, they were in real danger. The disciples went and woke him up shouting, Master, Master, we are going to drown. Now they hadn't drowned yet, but they were confident that in the future it was going to happen. Faith is that exact thing. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm confident in the future it will happen. So when I have faith that God will heal someone, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm confident it will happen. When I am praying for someone to be resurrected, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm confident it's going to happen. When I'm praying that he's going to provide for that bill, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm confident it's going to happen. Now, they were in real danger. There were storms. The boat was taken on water. All that was real. But they didn't say, God, we're in a storm. Can you help us? They didn't say, Jesus, wake up. We are in a storm, but you can save us. They said, we are going to drown. They had full faith that they were dying. They had full faith that they were going to sink to the bottom and they were going to drown and they were going to die. And so Jesus questions them. He says, where is your faith? So I think sometimes, for the most part, lots of us have faith. I mean, the fact that you would drive here this morning, stand up, sing songs, maybe even lift your hands to a God that you can't see, that is proof to me that all of you have faith. But the question remains of where is your faith? This morning it was placed in a great spot. You're praising God, hallelujah. But tomorrow or this week, are there other situations where you're saying, we are going to drown? Meanwhile, Jesus is in the boat with you and he's asking, guys, I'm right here. Didn't you, didn't you think that I would do something? You thought I was going to be the Messiah and I was going to come and I'm going to usher in the kingdom of God and I'm going to choose these people to build the, the kingdom of God and then we're all going to die in a boating accident? Like, is that really, you think God's highest plan was that it would end in a lake? They totally lost sight of it. And I think sometimes, even though we giggle because it's funny, we lose sight of the plan that God has on our life or the prophetic words that he's spoken, the truths that we are holding on to, whether in scripture or whether it's something he's given to us by the Holy Spirit. We, we lose sight of that and all we see is our circumstance and we think this is going to end badly. And we begin to shift our faith from Jesus the one who holds it all in his hands to our circumstance. And we see the wind and we see the waves and we say, oh my gosh, we are going to drown. And instead, radical faith says, okay, I see the wind, I see the waves. I am in real danger. You can acknowledge it. You don't have to be a crazy person where you just deny everything. That's not it. The, the, the Bible and scripture does not call us to live in denial, but it calls us to live understanding that there's a greater truth. So yes, there are wind and waves. Yes, we are in real danger. Yes, someone should go wake up Jesus. Yes, we need to cry out to him. But we don't need to tell him we are drowning. We need to tell him you are the one that the waves obey. Right? So I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what your storm is right now. But your radical faith doesn't look like just ignoring it. And your radical faith doesn't look like jumping into a, a, a fiery furnace today. Your radical faith looks like looking Jesus in the eyes and saying, Jesus, I need you because you're the one who can calm the waves. Jesus, I need you because you're the one who can still the storm. Not going to him and saying, we're going to drown. Because his response is going to be, where is your faith? You've got faith, you just put it in the wrong place. I've heard it preached before that, that fear is faith in the wrong kingdom. Let that sink in. Fear is faith in the wrong kingdom. It's this exact principle. It's, we took our faith and we were radical about it so much that we were convinced that something was going to happen that hadn't happened yet. And so when we are fearful, when we're living our lives in, in fear and we're scared and intimidated, our faith is in the wrong place. And Jesus' response to you isn't of criticism. It's where is your faith? It's a helpful question to open our eyes to realize, oh man, I was putting my faith in the storm. I wasn't putting my faith in Jesus. And I've had Jesus here this whole time. Some of us get upset 
And we even see this in Mark's account. Mark 4, verse 38. It's the the same story told from a different person's perspective. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. He doesn't care that they're in a storm because he knows his faith is in the right place. Sleeping in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Ooh, don't you care? Man, how many times have we come with accusations to the Lord when we hit storms? God, don't you care? And the whole time he's right there with us, but we're shouting at him, don't you care that we're going to drown? Faith in the wrong place. So radical faith looks like putting your faith in Jesus, not in your storms. Radical faith says, uh, I believe in, in who he is. I believe he, he can do it, he will do it, and even if he doesn't, I'm still going to worship him. That's radical faith. So church, Jesus is calling us to be radicalized. And this is what radical faith looks like. If we're going to live radicalized, it's not that we're extreme in one thing or another. It's not that we're riding these pendulums back and forth and have weird doctrine about strange things. It's that we are, we are believing him for what he says. We're taking the whole of scripture and we're applying it to our life and we're living radically. Okay, that's radical faith. Um, I have radical obedience and radical words, but I want to, I want to give you one more thing on this faith thing. Um, in Luke 8, uh, Jesus is ministering, he's doing his thing, whatever. Someone comes to him and they say, hey, uh, my daughter is really sick, I need your help. This is Jairus. He has a daughter, she's sick. And it's, uh, it's like terminal. It's, it's, she's really sick. It's not just like, oh, she's not feeling well. She's really sick. And so they are walking to Jairus' house. Jesus is going with him to go and heal the daughter. And there's a whole crowd around. There's a bunch of people. And in the crowd is one woman um, who is having a a health issue herself. She's had it for years, spent tons of money trying to get it healed, and doctors can't do anything, and medical community can't do anything, and so she's hopeless. But she knows that Jesus can do a lot. And so she comes. And she doesn't want to disturb him, uh, she doesn't want to interrupt things. She doesn't want to cause a scene. But she thinks, if I can just touch him, I'll be healed. And so she reaches out through the crowd. She touches the, his, his garment. His robe is like dress thing, Middle Eastern garb. And uh, she touches it. And in a moment, her whole body is transformed. She's healed. Jesus feels the power go out. And he asks, he says, who, who touched me? And the disciples are like, we are shoulder to shoulder with about 150 people like Everyone is touching you. I don't understand the question. He says, no, no, no. Someone touched me, like, with purpose. I felt this power go out. And so he stops everything. Like, they're on the way to go heal someone. They're doing a, you know, a medical visitation. And, uh, and he stops it all. And he says, no, who was it? And so this lady comes forward and yada, yada, yada. Beautiful story. Go back and read it. Luke 8. But then what happens is uh, a messenger comes, and they find Jarius. So while all this is unfolding, and they say to Jarius, hey, your daughter died. Don't bother the, the teacher anymore. Like, don't bring him to the house because he can't heal her. She's dead. And so Jairus is like heartbroken, but Jesus is right there and he's saying, hey, um, don't be afraid. Just have faith. Like, I'll come. Your daughter will, will live. And so Jairus is like, oh. And this is what I love. So this is radical faith. The people in, in his life were telling him, it's no use. Stop believing Jesus for something. But Jesus was so good that they were on the way to do the thing that he was praying for. And Jairus saw what he needed to see to give him the faith to say, okay, I won't be afraid, I will believe. Are you seeing that? 
most of the time we've taught those as two very different stories. Like you've got the, the woman who's healed and you've got the daughter who was raised from life. But I want you to see them in the context together that here's a man who needed faith and Jesus is so good that he'll give us examples and testimonies to stand on. So he doesn't, stand, he doesn't, he doesn't call us to radical faith and then say, I hope you can do it. He doesn't call us to, to really believe and trust him and then say, I hope you're good enough or I hope you're strong enough or I hope you can do it on your own. Here's a man that Jesus, because he, he's knowing all of this, he's, you know, and it takes a while. So like he knows the daughter's sick. He knows that she's, she's dead. But Jairus is still thinking that she's sick. And so the Holy Spirit orchestrates this beautiful healing right in front of Jairus' eyes so he can say, okay, God can, Jesus here, this man can do the miraculous. And then when someone comes and says, hey, like, give up, don't stop praying, it's hopeless. Jesus says, no, 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 don't be afraid. Hope, believe, trust, and this will happen. And then he goes and he raises her from the dead, and it's beautiful, and it's awesome. But what I love about that is, is the radical faith to believe when someone said, don't believe, and also the goodness of God to send testimonies and to send something else while we're in the midst of believing so that we can continue to believe. Are you seeing that? Okay, so that's radical faith. Radical obedience. You, you won't be obedient without faith, but you won't grow your faith without being obedient. Okay, so it's this unfortunate, almost like a catch-22, where it's like, okay, uh, God, I have, to, I have to have faith in order to be obedient, because I'm not going to be obedient to what God says if I don't believe God exists, right? So you have to have some level of faith to say, okay, I heard God, I believe him, I'm going to do it. But you won't grow your obedience without stepping out in faith, you know? So I need faith to be obedient, but I also need to be obedient to prove that I've got faith. And this is what uh, James gets into in chapter two. He talks about, I will show you my faith by my good deeds. He says, so my actions, my obedience is proving my faith and my faith is producing my obedience. So both of them work together to build us up. So when we talk about being radically obedient, it's not always the biggest thing of like, oh, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna, you know, sell everything and become a missionary. Some of us will be called to that. And it's not, I'm going to be obedient to God, so I'm going to join a church and be on staff and in, in quote-unquote, ministry. Sometimes being obedient to God is like, okay, I'm going to go be, uh, you know, I'm going to work in law enforcement because we need, like, godly Christian law enforcement officers. Or I'm going to give my life to education because we need godly superintendents that will make sure our curriculum trains our students to think with a, a, a biblical worldview. You know, or maybe it's I'm going to, to run for office because we need godly men and women who will, who will shape legislation and who will, who will rule with justice. Like, like sometimes being obedient to God isn't just like, oh, I'm going to go be in like, we say ministry and that's wrong because we've talked again and again that you guys are the ministers, that, that people like Mike and Marcus and myself, we're just equipping you guys. We're giving you the tools to do the ministry. And so, so it's not like, oh, I need to go do, join a church. It's no, you just, you be where God's called you. Like, you be, the, you be the most Jesus-looking person you can be in where he has called you. And so when we talk about radical obedience, it's not these big, grandiose things of like, oh, well, I have to go to Africa and be a missionary. No, you've got to be a missionary in your school or in your workplace. And like, that is your radical obedience. And that, that takes these steps of faith. And, it, and as your faith grows, it, it produces these steps of obedience. So both of those work together. Radical love, loving those people who hurt us, loving those people with everything we've got. Radical faith, believing God will do something. He can do something. He will do something. And even if it doesn't, we still love him and worship him. And then radical obedience, that our, our love for God, 
John says, uh, if you love me, obey my commandments. John 14, 15. Jesus is talking. He says, if you love me, obey my commandments. So that love and that faith working together to produce obedience. And we do this all because there are, there are radical rewards. So the Bible talks about um, in order to, to come to God, you have to believe that he exists. In order to please God, you have to b- believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek after him. There are rewards. Um, and we see those all throughout. So uh, I'm going to just rattle off a bunch. If you've got like a notes app or a pen and paper and like a seat back near you, um, jot some of these down because these will be fun to go, to go over later. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. 2 Timothy 4, 7. He's, Paul's writing, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me. I mean, it's easy to be like, well, Paul, you're a superstar. You get prizes. The rest of us will just get consolation prizes. You know, like we'll get a ribbon, but you get the trophy. No, no, he says, and the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. All of us can work for a prize if we run our race well, if we fight the fight well. Romans 8.18, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. So there's a a beautiful glory waiting for us as a reward, Romans 8.18. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. 2 Corinthians 4. John 6, towards the end, verse 66 says, At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you going to leave? And Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. So Jesus had said something controversial. He said something very unpopular. His PR team was sent into a tizzy. And then he says, are you also going to leave? Because a bunch of people left. They said, well, that's too hard. That's uncomfortable. I don't like that. And Jesus turns to his 12 closest and he says, are you guys also going to leave? And they said, no, where else will we go? You have the words of life. Everything else in life will, will ring hollow and, and will leave us still wanting more substances, entertainment, relationships, none of them will fully satisfy in the way that God satisfies. And these 12 understood it. They were like, yeah, I get it. I'm going to be bought into this. And so radical rewards were the words that created eternal life, the words that gave eternal life, the words that were fulfilling, the words that were stirring, the, the, the words that gave, gave so much. Okay, just a couple more for you guys. Jot these down. First Peter chapter 1. Uh, it's long. Uh, and then First Peter chapter 4, there's a bunch more. We won't go into it all, but it talks about suffering and rewards and God paid a, a ransom. And so we got to live a certain way because then there's rewards for it and lots of glory. And I'm, I'm summarizing quickly, but First Peter, it's kind of a short book. Just read the whole thing, but chapters 1 and 4, especially good. And then uh, let's see. Oh, 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. So 1 Corinthians 3 says this. Um, no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already laid. So he's talking about other, other ministers, other preachers preaching different things. And he says, no, 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 no one else can preach. It's Jesus and just Jesus. And he says, anyone who builds on that foundation of Jesus 
may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. So we have a choice. The way we build our lives will get reviewed and and evaluated at the end of our life. And Jesus will look at our life and he'll say, what did you do? And if our response is, I, I watched all seasons of that show on Netflix and I had a subscription to Amazon Prime, which got me a lot of great entertainment. And he's like, okay, that, that doesn't really matter. You know, like I'm all for, I'm all for having fun. Like I'm all for like watching movies. Like that's, I'm not knocking on that. But if at the end of your life, like what did you build? And you're like, oh, I can quote every funny movie. Then I think Jesus is going to be like, that's not really the assignment. Like you sort of missed it. But if you're like, oh, I gave my life to discipling others and like I was committed to do everything you asked me to do, then I think he's going to be like, that's awesome. Like, here's all your rewards. And I don't think I'm misinterpreting this at all. Like, I think that's what it's saying is we have to be, uh, we have to be conscious of how we are living our life. If we look back on the moments and the days, because the days become weeks and months and years and they become our life, our legacy, we have to be honest. Like, how am I building my life? How am I building my legacy and how is it going to be evaluated when my life ends and I meet Jesus? Is he going to say, wow, well done, good and faithful servant? Or is he going to say, you really thought that was important? Okay. All right. Okay. Are we going to be barely escaping through a wall of fire? Because that's not what I want. I want to get there and I want to hear him say, well done. I want to get there and I want to get rewards. I was talking to someone the other day and they're like, I'm pretty competitive. And they're like, if we get houses because Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. He says, if we get houses in heaven, he says, I want mine to be the biggest. <laughs> He's competitive. He's like, I want it to be a whole mansion. I want people to know like, wow, that guy did stuff for the kingdom. Like, look at his house. And I'm not very competitive. So I was just like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> but, but it's a beautiful thought of like, there are real rewards and it is not selfish to work for those. It is not selfish to say, God, I want to serve you well and I want to be rewarded at the end of my life. That's not a selfish prayer. That's good. And then lastly, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 9. It says, So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. That's our goal. Our goal is to please the Lord. For we, we must all stand before Christ to be judged or evaluated, and we will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil we have done in this earthly body. So at the end of it, we get an evaluation. And we either did really good or we did bad, and we're going to get we're going to get you know, whatever we deserve for how we lived. And so that's, that's my prayer. Um, radical. We're going to be radicalized. We're going to be crazy, but like in a good way, not, not swinging on the pendulums to these weird doctrinal things, but in a way where like we love people that don't deserve love, where we believe that even if it doesn't make sense or even if it doesn't happen, we still believe in God. And we're going to obey that when he asks us to do things that are uncomfortable or unpleasant, we're not going to say, oh, God wouldn't ask me to do something that's not convenient. We're going to embrace it. And we're going to say, God, I will be obedient even if I get laughed at. You know, I'll be obedient even if it sounds silly. I will build this ark even if it takes me a hundred years, you know, like whatever, whatever the thing is. Um, and so if that's, if that rings in your heart and if you say, yes, I want that to, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this. 
Because like I said earlier, it's not just enough to smile and nod and, and say a few amens. You, you have to change something for something to change. Like you have to make a, make a difference, a plan for like, okay, I'm going to be radical. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love my spouse really well. And, and you can't, you know, so you take the big, I'm going to radically love, and you make it smaller and you say, okay, I'm going to start with my spouse. And then you have to like decide what does that look like? Does it, okay, I'm going to do the laundry without being asked? Is it I'm going to take out the trash when I don't normally do that? Or is it I'm going to... Um, make a, a special dinner, or is it I'm going to make the coffee every morning? Like, like I think love is, is also really practical. I know that Jesus is big, and God is awesome, and he's got the whole world in his hands, but I think he also cares about, like, the little. Like, you know, you, you bought flowers. It's like, okay, that's great. Like, let's start our radical love there. Like, let's all just buy some flowers, and, and let's go. And, and then you do that every day. So you find something that you can do every day. Okay, let's start small. That's good. That's great. You're doing that with your spouse. All right, now your coworkers. So instead of just, like, you know, kind of halfway doing it on a project or a report or whatever it is you're doing, your, whatever your job requires, like you give it your best. And you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love my coworkers well by serving them well. So I'm going to pick up coffee for the office or I'm going to go above and beyond in this project or I know that so-and-so's kind of overworked because so-and-so called in sick, so I'm going to take a load off of their, and, you know, and so we're going to begin to love well. And it, and it actually wor- looks like work sometimes. And we're going to be obedient to God, which also sometimes looks like work. So when he says, hey, I know you want to take a you day today for self-care and for relaxation, but what if instead you went and helped out at this thing or at this event and you gave of your time or your, your, your talents and your skills or you invested in someone else? And when those are happening, like, that's our radical obedience. So it's not that we're looking for one big one-off event. We're looking for the everyday mundane we're looking for the day in, the day out, every morning, every afternoon, every evening, looking for those ways where we can be obedient, where we can love. And so I'm, I'm saying all this to, to build this foundation of, of you guys have to take, take a step. So hopefully I'm, I'm opening your eyes. Hopefully this has been enlightening. You can say, ah, oh, yes, this is what God's calling me to do. And now it's up to you to take those next steps, to find people that you can do this together in community with, those mothers and fathers that can call you out and build you up and, and, and push you higher. You can find those those, those brothers in arms that you can say, let's do this together. Let's, let's, be, let's be encouraged by one another. And you can, you can dive into those reading plans and into Bible times and 6 a.m. prayer calls. And, and you can be with a community of believers that are, that are praying and, and asking God for what he has for them. Amen? Amen. Good. All right. So let's, let's stand and respond to this. I'm going to pray. And you pray also. This isn't just me praying for you. This is me praying for me because I need this. And you also have to pray for you. So this is the second time today I'm asking you to pray for yourself. Hopefully you feel really good as you leave because you're like, I got two prayers. All right, Father God, we love you. And we are hearing your call to be radicalized. Not to be comfortable or convenient, but to step out and to have radical love. That we would love even our enemies, not just the people who like us or are kind to us, but the people who dislike us and make our life difficult, that we would go out of our way to show them love and care and affection. Lord, that we would have radical faith, that we would say, you can do it, you will do it, and even if it doesn't happen, you're still worthy of all my praise. That we would have radical faith that doesn't look at the storm and say, I am going to drown, but instead it says it looks at Jesus and it says, he will still this storm. He will be my foundation that brings me through. That we would have radical obedience. That when you're calling us to speak a word or to give a dollar or to serve or to step out, 
or to do anything that we would say yes. Not a hesitant yes, not a when I'm finished with this, I'll do it, but a drop everything and say how high kind of yes. Lord, we pray that you would stir us to take action. That it's not enough to just say yes this morning, but that we would say yes every day. That it's not enough to be radical in in just a Sunday morning, but that we would be radicalized in, in every way. That in all of our our goings and our doings and our working and our schooling and our our family and our rest and, and in everything that we do, that we would give it to you. And we'd say, God, I have all of it. Have our speech, have our actions, have our relationships, have our life, have everything that we do. We give it all to you and submit it to you because you are Lord and you are God. Holy Spirit, come and help us in this. Help us to be all that you've called us to be in this season. In Jesus' name. Amen.